When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. From New York City, this is Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit. I'm Matt Singer. And I'm Allison Wilmore. Coming up on this episode of SVU, Matt and I put on our robes and sit in judgment of Ken Russell's The Devils. Later in the show, we'll bring you cue shots where we recommend some movies you can rent or stream at home right now, all with a common theme and inspired by The Devils. We were going to perform some satanic rituals for you here this week, but we had real trouble hunting down fresh goat's blood. Hard to find. Surprisingly. You would think Williamsburg would it would just literally be on every well, street corner. I told you, I'm not paying for organic. Yeah. The artisanal is where they get you with the with the, the price hikes. But anyway, instead, we're going to recommend some other horror movies like The Devils with religious themes. But first, let's do opening break. A segment we do in conjunction with Movies on Demand on cable in which we spotlight a few new titles that have been recently added to On Demand. Allison, it's your turn to choose the movies. What have you got for us this time? Well, first up, available on demand on uh, April 11th, which will basically be live by the time you're listening to this, is Lion, one of this past year's Oscar favorites. Uh, Garth Davis's movie, which is, is actually his feature directorial debut, based on the life of Suru Brierly, who incredibly got separated from his family when he was just a boy, and then ended up getting adopted and being raised in Tasmania only to find his way back towards his origins with the magic of Google Earth and other things. Uh, stars Dev Patel, Rooney Mara, David Wenham, and Nicole Kidman, who's really having a moment again, thanks to Big Little Lies. And this was kind of the start of that uh, with her Best Supporting Actress nomination. It's a really nice movie. I think that you know, it was a little quiet for, I think, this this Oscar race, but it it is like a one of those movies that you will sob at the end, and I think it's it's really well handled for, for what it is. Lion, that is available now-ish on Movies On Demand. Available on April 14th is Queen of the Desert. This is the long-delayed, also Nicole Kidman movie, directed by Werner Herzog, based on the life of the British archaeologist and explorer and cartographer Gertrude Bell. Uh, it goes through her life from her early 20s through her death. Herzog's uh, non-documentary work is always all over the place. This is his first since two, since 2009, when he did My Son, My Son, What Have Ye Done? 
Has it been well-received? No, it has not. It has not been well-received. However, as a kind of Herzog, uh, someone with a huge soft spot for Herzog, will I check it out? Absolutely. Uh, The cast also includes the inescapable James Franco, Damian Lewis, and Robert Pattinson, who's been making some interesting acting choices recently. So that's Queen of the Desert. It will be available on demand on the 14th. And finally, available on demand on the 18th is Split, part of M. Night Shyamalan's comeback. Uh, You know, a psychological horror film starring James McAvoy and Anya Taylor-Joy that was one of the surprise hits early this year. Uh, A big hit for Bloomhouse, a kind of surprising, you know, kind of more compact horror film that has gone out to make kind of a lot of money and famously has a twist ending. That's right. Samuel L. Jackson comes out of the credits, comes out after the credits and recruits everyone into the Avengers. <laughs> Thanks for spoiling it. I still haven't seen that one. Uh-huh. That's Aww. not what happens. Oh. Though, as always, you can never entirely count Samuel L. Jackson out because that man works very hard and is very <laughs> prolific. So he's usually tied in in some way or another. So that is Split. It is available on the 18th. In 1634, Louis XIII, King of France, wrote to Jean de Martin, Baron Le Valdemont, concerning the walls of the provincial city of Loudun. Its walls were among the last left standing in the country whose feudal lords were being systematically divested of their powers and independence. I ask you once again, where is His Majesty's proclamation authorizing this demolition? In a common priest, you act uncommonly like a governor, Father. Where is your authority? Here! Should one more stone be torn from our city walls, you will be dead before it touches the ground. On every episode of SVU, our main review is chosen by listeners via poll on our incredible website, filmspottingsvu.com. On our last episodes, the options we gave you start over on every episode of svu our main review is chosen by listeners via a poll on our incredible website filmspottingsvu.com on our last episode the options we gave you were abel ferrara's welcome to new york evolution by an incredibly talented filmmaker whose name i am not going to attempt to butcher at this time and the devils from director ken russell which was our runaway winner with almost 50 percent of all the votes cast the film was made in 1971 and it's loosely based on real events and a book by aldous huxley the devils of ludon it fictionalizes events in the life of Urban Grandier, a Roman Catholic priest played by Oliver Reed, who was the leader of this community, this little town, and a perceived threat to the government of France. They accuse him of witchcraft based in large part on the testimony of a hunchbacked nun who harbors a sexual obsession for him, Sister Jeanne, played by Vanessa Redgrave. If that sounds like scandalous material, well, it very much was when the movie was released back in the early 1970s. From the very beginning, the film was a target of censors. Scenes and images were cut to get an X rating, not even an R rating, but an X, back when X was still an actual thing that existed. And over the decades, it's been very hard to almost impossible to see in a form resembling what Ken Russell originally intended. Over the last decade or so, champions in the film community, including British critic Mark Kermode, have helped bring the movie back to light. They have found some of the lost footage and restored it. 
And now the movie is available on Shudder, the relatively new streaming service that is dedicated to horror films. And it's it's there in a more complete form than has been available in the United States for a very long time. Allison, often when a movie becomes lost or just hard to watch, unreleased in, in certain formats, it can accrue a positive reputation simply, I think, by the benefit of being so hard to find and rare. It, you know, it kind of gets a buzz, just the fact that it's hard to see, especially when it's about subjects like The Devils, where it has a kind of taboo, edgy kind of reputation. So my question to you is, now that you have seen The Devils, do you think its reputation as this brilliant buried treasure is accurate or is it perhaps inflated by just the fact that it was so hard to find for so long? Ooh, an interesting question. I will say a mix of the two. Okay. I think that there is absolute brilliance to it and certainly in the look of the film and the kind of operatic sensibility of it. I thought, especially the first half of the film, I adored. Mm -hmm. I thought it was incredible. I think that in some ways it's the provocations it's so famous for are its weakest point because it is so intent on just like jabbing you in the eye with like, with imagery that I think, you know, watching now doesn't seem scandalous so much as just almost like, uh, I don't know, like someone desperately trying to make you angry. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, uh, you know, as, as someone who does not feel particularly sensitive over uh, religious imagery, like blasphemous religious imagery, I don't think it doesn't do much for me in that context. And I think that, you know, that, that part of the film towards the end where it just tries really, things go just like out of control, erupt out of control, like a Bosch painting. <laughs> like uh, after a while, it got a little tiresome uh, for me. But I did think, I do think that the filmmaking here is really strikingly wonderful. A lot of it, just like the, the, like the way these shots are composed, the like visuals of the town and the kind of, uh, Derek Jarman was a production designer on this and it's just, it looks fantastic. But how about you, Matt? What did you think of this film? Well, we are, we are kind of on the exact same page here. I think I, I did, I enjoyed watching the movie and as you have already said the visual sense of the movie is absolutely amazing it's a beautiful movie to watch which the funny word to use when it's about these horrible acts of torture and you know crazy nun orgies and whatnot but just visually it's just like a ravishing movie the production design is incredible um i watched this making of documentary that i found on youtube which uh is like hosted by mark kermode and just seeing like this, they built that gigantic, that city town square. Yeah. It's incredible, this thing that they built just for this weird movie. <laughs> and I think that's what I liked most about it as well. Or the other thing I loved about it is just that the movie begins with like the Warner Brothers logo. And it is mind boggling to me, you know, and especially in 2017, 1971 was a very different time in Hollywood. But just looking back at it now, the idea that a main you know, a big studio was like, yes, we will make this movie and give you enough money to make it on a pretty big scale is, I mean, that's to me is like the thing to love most about it. And in, in some ways is that in this time of very safe, you know, the, 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 the brandification of Hollywood or everything has to be something you can sell. No studio would would go anywhere near this. They wouldn't. They wouldn't let their boutique indie label touch this thing. And Warner Brothers, in their infinite wisdom, was like, "Yes, we will make this movie about nun orgies and horrible torture of priests." 
and uh, that is just incredibly critical of the church and, and religious hypocrisy. So I give it a lot of credit for that. I did also enjoy the first half more than the second half, where it, it to me it did become a little bit of just a uh, you know the the trial to me and all of that it was it did feel a little inevitable and the shocking quote unquote scenes from from our very jaundiced and cynical eye of 2017 they're not quite as shocking shocking as they surely were in 1971. So yeah, we're kind of on the same page. I did really like it. I was glad I finally got to see it, but I certainly have seen movies that kind of shocked me more than this. Right. I did. You can watch the the scene, the most famous scene that has been cut from this version, which is the U.S. theatrical release, I believe, is the nun orgy, yeah. uh, which you can find on YouTube. <laughs> yeah. And, and that documentary I watched, um, I'll get the name of it in a second. You can find it. There's like uh, excerpts from some of the stuff that's been cut in there as well. So if you're like, I gotta, I gotta see all this horrible stuff, you can find it there as well. Yeah. I don't feel that the nun orgy, like, which is cut but with uh, Father Grandier becoming like you see a little bit of this in the cut that's on Shutter, but like his kind of reconnection with religious faith and mm-hmm. you know uh, and a sense of like religious mm, conviction. It it like cuts between him like you know doing these like blessing the bread and all of that the sacrament, and and then uh, this orgy like escalating and escalating like a character climbing up and masturbating over like all of these nuns like writhing around the crucifix. And yeah, you're like I got it. Like I got I got the point a while before this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but I yeah I do feel that especially in that first half you know I I do think that like. Ken Russell, I know Ken Russell's great obsession, one of his great obsessions was the Catholic Church. And I think that his sense of how, you know, human sensuality can get channeled into and repressed by all of these systems it is like, there is something like that he understands about that, that is very, uh, I, I think, like significant, you know, watching even as much as like their how heightened this is, you know, to watch Vanessa Redgrave's performance as this character who is like crawling on the ground, like writhing with like a uh, lust that she can't really understand. Yeah. You know, I think that there is power to that. Mm-hmm. There is power to these performances. Um, and even, um, you know, as when Father Barr, the played by Michael Gothard, the the witch hunter comes and oh is like this extremely over the top character, yeah. but is like an embodiment of the ways in which like sexuality get challenged, you know, get channeled into these like it gets challenged into these like almost like grotesque, you know, means of of exercising spirits and into um, religious fervor. Yeah, but yeah, I I think that. You know, there is something there before I think it becomes just like someone kind of indulging their own sexual kinks on screen before that point. You know, I think that there is something to his understanding, to Mm -hmm. Russell's understanding of that, that I think has stayed with me. Yeah, I also really liked Oliver Reed's performance here and the way that that character is written, you know, that he's not just this you know, pious guy who gets caught up in very much not a pious guy that who, you know, gets caught in the machinations of these, you know, um, these powerful men who want to destroy him because he's a threat to them, which he is, but that he is, you know, he's a, he's a lusty guy himself who is, he's familiar with the pleasures of the flesh. And I just like the fact that our quote unquote hero here is just as, I mean, not just as, but is pretty morally compromised as well. And that he is, you know, uh, fooling around with the ladies. And so I just like the fact that um, 
that that was a that was a crucial part, but that we are sort of forced to identify with him and to kind of root for him in in this in this um, absurd and wild scenario. And I also did like, as you're saying, that you know, for a guy like me who does not know a ton about religious history and especially about this particular time and place, that you know, you get to understand well these nuns. You know, most of them were just put there because they couldn't afford to be anywhere else. This is they get parked there, yeah. right? They were essentially put there by families that had no other means of supporting them, and it explains why you have a lot of these women who are, frankly, hot to trot. They, you know, they they didn't want to be here. They're not interested in serving the church. They just have nowhere else to go, and I think it explains a lot of the pent up energy that's you know, repressed and then explodes at the end of the movie. Well, the way that the convent is portrayed also as this like tiled place, this all white place, it's all like white on white. And it feels like it is, I don't know that this is entirely true, but just the way they, they have the windows, it feels like it is simultaneously in a basement and in a tower, Mm. you know, like characters climb on a ladder to peek out one of the windows. Whereas Sister Jean, uh, Vanessa Redgrave's character like crawls into this like basement to like peek out of this ground level window. It's, it's cut off in this way that like characters have to kind of like writhe and like like uh you know like exert themselves to even see out and i think Mm -hmm. that like it's really imaginative envisioning uh, of this space in which characters have just been these women have been penned in are basically locked up uh literally locked up yeah bars on the windows yes they speak through like a barred door yeah that like it is a life in which piousness is equated with basically never touching the outside world again. Right. I mean, and the, the ceilings even in that, in, in that convent are so low. And there's, there's a shot where, like, I think it might even be the first time we see Sister Jean, where she's like, it, you know, she's, cause she has this sort of kink in her neck. She's always turned to the side where her head is barely getting through. And you're almost like, is she doing that to get through this archway? And then you realize, oh no, her head, you know, she has this, you know, she's got this, um, affliction and you, and you realize it just kind of suggests the claustrophobia, the way that these women are being penned in and sort of forced, you know, they're almost forced to like, I don't know, like bend the knee or something that it, like this, that they are so physically um, repressed in this, in this space. And then the, the Grenier characters like sort of, I don't know, he lives in like a tower. It's so opulent, you know, and, and that also has its own metaphorical suggestions um, that I thought worked very nicely as well. I agree. The, the, just the production design is really incredible. And, and again, that big town square where some of the scenes are set and everything that that implies where they, they live in this sort of insular protected community and how that makes them feel almost invincible or immune to the outside world. And then what happens by the end of the movie um, certainly to me has some very strong you know, uh, resonances beyond even the story of, of religious persecution and, and sexual hypocrisy that, you know, this idea of, you know, about isolationism or, uh, you know, there's definitely some ways you can read this into, uh, into this story that have nothing to do with, uh, France in the 17th century. Well, it also is about characters who basically out of spite, some of them will the destruction of their town, right? They are so angry they have so many like grandier has for good reason accrued a lot of grudges in town from right. various people right and like rage against him people are willing are so willing to act out of spite that 
they they allow their town to fall to political pressures and like the the walls to be taken down that protected them. And I feel like certainly that has a resonance. What could that remind me? Nothing. (laughs) I have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah. But uh, I did want to mention also, I like the way that they portray the outside outside of the town, the like the, you know, which it's set in France that had just gone through these religious wars between the Catholics and the Protestants. And the, the roads are lined with people, like corpses on Catherine wheels that just like are rotting all yeah. along the way. It's just like, it is like the outside is like hell. Yes. And the inside for all of its hypocrisy is like this shelter that they have managed to build sustained by these walls. That yeah, I I do I did really enjoy seeing Oliver Reed in, Reed in this. You know he is he's really good. He is great. I mean, among for all that he was a legendary mess of a <laughs> hard drinking human being, mm-hmm. uh, he is just so charismatic. He is among his other talents one of one of cinema's great bad boyfriends. <laughs> has always been but he's so magnetic in this when everyone all of these women you know basically are are like climbing the walls to have a look at him you yeah. understand you why oh, yeah, yeah you absolutely understand that it. sweet mustache yep. the little soul patch uh-huh. which is really one of the most horrible looks in humanity's and history he makes it and he makes it work he yeah really he looks makes it he work. looks really good he's got the big mutton chops i'm not sure all that facial hair and everything was period accurate but then neither and the was witch a- hunter who looks like he just stepped out of like an early 70s rock band uh-huh. with like his he's never, he's never wearing sleeves uh-huh. he's got those john lennon glasses yep but then again nothing about like i mean the design of the walls is no it's either. totally it's a, modern which is like it, it is one of the best parts of this yeah yeah what the other thing i did want to mention is that i i liked that grandier and sister jean have so little contact right. for all that they are and sister jean is like used as a weapon against him he has no idea who she is or why or, or or any kind of like sense of why she has started to call him out the way right. she does, and and she doesn't do it out of spite to begin with. It's like just the way in which she's understanding these feelings. Um, but I, I did like them as two characters who are basically like the ones who are aware of like the context outside of the religiousness that they are supposed to stick with, right? Like when Sister Jean gives that speech about like we're basically here we're dumping ground for women that are not marriageable right. uh and and grandier is the one who is aware of the fact that all of, uh cardinal richelieu you know out there with the king in france has reasons to want the walls taken down mm-hmm. and that what this campaign against him is largely political like these are two people who understand the system better than almost anyone else but they're and still they're both, and they're both punished for it. Right, basically. they're still helpless to yes, do anything they can't about do anything. it. Yeah, and I think I, 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 that was one of the things that I found actually kind of the scariest parts of it. Forget about like the torture scenes or whatever. It, the idea that you know when you get sort of tarred with the brush of witchcraft or whatever it is, this sort of religious fervor and fear that there's you know there's essentially no there's no comeback. There is no evidence you can present. Anything you say is proof. You know that they you are what they say you are, and I think that's one of the things that I always find the scariest in movies like this. In movies of sort of religious horror, is like forget about the supernatural. It is the it's like the overwhelming paranoia of this this supernatural force that is ultimately the really scary thing because that's the thing that is real and exists 
over and over again throughout history and has taken so many lives. Right. And there is that scene uh, in the midst of all of this hysteria in which the king of France comes in disguise yeah. and presents what he claims is a religious piece of like powerful religious iconography basically just to mess with all of these mm-hmm. people. And uh, that scene is so, that scene is like very like strikingly done and well done and also changes nothing. Mm-hmm. Like his point, it, uh, cruelly made as it is, mm-hmm. matters nothing to these people. Yeah. All right. Well, that is The Devils. You can watch it on Shudder. And the name of that documentary that I was referring to earlier is Hell on Earth, The Desecration and Resurrection of the Devils, which you can find on uh, YouTube if you want to watch that as well. of the devils we are going to talk about some religious horror movies and we're not going to talk about frailty our last main review which it actually does fit in with this pattern but uh that that was a coincidence but i do think it goes to it speak to the larger point of how much religion is a major part of a lot of horror for good reason mm-hmm. you know religion is the structure that has often taught us what is supposed to be scary and right. what is not mm-hmm. Classics of the genre, The Exorcist, Rosemary's Baby, The Wicker Man. The Wicker Man. Are all uh, based around religion. I find nothing scarier than wondering how something got burned. That, to me, is the definition of true horror. Well, do we have anything else to say about this genre? No, I think the only thing I would... Well, I guess I have one more thing I could add, but I think I'll just use one of my picks to to talk about that. Go for it. <clears throat> okay, so, well, I'll get to that in a bit, but we were using Shudder for our main review, and I thought, given that, we're better to watch uh, more religious horror movies than on Shudder, which has these really nice collections of movies. Like, they br- you can browse through different groups, that you know, and they arrange them by subject matter or country of origin, and they have a couple different collections that definitely apply to our topic this week. There's, like, a whole section about demonic possessions and exorcism movies— And they also have one about witchcraft. And so that's where I found my first pick, which is Curse of the Demon from 1957. It's also known as Night of the Demon. Uh, It's directed by Jacques Tourneur. 1957 was a couple of years past his prime, but in the 1940s, Jacques Tourneur had this incredible run as one of the decade's signature horror directors with movies like Cat People, the original Cat People, and I Walked with a Zombie. And a few years after that, he directed Out of the Past, 
which is one of my all-time favorite film noir movies that has ever been made. Curse of the Demon, I wouldn't put quite on the level of those other movies, at least to me. Actually, Martin Scorsese supposedly thinks this is one of the greatest horror films ever made. Uh, I don't know if I quite would go there, but it does bear a lot of these signature Jacques Tourneur touches, namely this incredible atmosphere of like intense creepiness, beautiful, high-contrast black-and-white photography. His movies are always amongst the most beautiful studio films of, of the period, and a great spooky music score. Um, the story has some interesting thematic similarities to The Devils in that it is about the fear of demonic possession and how the hunt for quote-unquote evidence can sometimes become a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy. It also involves a curse, as the title suggests, that feels like it could have been an influence on uh, The Ring, even the original version. I'm not sure if the if I'm not sure if it was, but there's definitely some similarities there. The hero of the film is played by Dana Andrews. He's this American psychologist. He travels to England to attend a conference where another scientist is going to debunk the existence of this demonic cult. But when Dana Andrews arrives in England, the scientist is mysteriously dead. And so he has to sort of investigate and figure out whether this was an accident as it supposedly is or whether there really is some kind of supernatural evil floating about uh, the only wrinkle here that I would I would sort of give as a kind of a knock on the film is that when this we see the scientist die in the film's opening sequence and then we also see this demon threatening him like an actual creature of some kind and it's not a particularly good looking demon it's not a terrible one but you know it's it's not very scary and Jacques Turner is a guy I think of you know, especially in those other earlier movies like Cat People, you know, he was great at not showing you the monster, playing with shadows, letting the audience's imagination do the work. And from what I read about this film, he didn't want to show the demon in Curse of the Demon, but he was overruled by his producer who felt very strongly that they needed to have sort of more graphic shocks. Um, and I think he was probably right and the producer was wrong, but I, I still enjoyed watching the movie. It's got a lot of atmosphere. It's got a lot of, it'll give you the chills. It is sort of one of those, it's just sort of lovely to look at old horror horror films. Um, so that is Curse of the Demon. It is available on Shudder. Well, for my, both of my picks actually, I ended up going with two movies that uh, involve possession in some way, which I, you know, I think possession is for good reason, this very powerful concept, this idea that you are yourself, but not yourself, that you have been infected in some way by evil. The first of these films is actually a brand new film that I think is still in some theaters and is available for rent. It is The Black Coat's Daughter. Uh, This is a film from Oz Perkins, who is the son of Anthony Perkins, so comes from horror royalty. Uh, who really should be this year's, like, everyone's new favorite art horror director. Uh, He did the Shirley Jackson-inspired I Am the Pretty Thing That Lives in the House, which is a Netflix original movie in which you can stream right now. That one was about a live-in nurse who is catering to a retired author in this house that's haunted, and in which she tells us right off the bat she will die. Uh, The Black Hood's Daughter uh, is easier to approach than that film, but it's still a little elliptical. Um, It has these two storylines that take a while to converge. In one, it's the end of February and the start of winter break at this Catholic girls boarding school in upstate New York. 
and two students have been left behind because their parents are late to pick them up. One, played by Kiernan Shipka, has this dream that something bad has happened to her parents. The other, played by Lucy Boynton, has arranged for that extra day in order to sneak off and meet with her boyfriends. In the other storyline, Emma Roberts plays a troubled young woman who hitches a ride with this older couple towards, it turns out, the town that the school was in. The moment in which these two touch these two threads touch is a really good one the one in which you understand what one has to do with the other but it's not as good as what it reveals about the relationship the movie has with its demonic force which is revealed to have latched onto one of the characters in the movie with some very spooky unsettling imagery the empty school is a great setting it's just snowbound it's this space that's meant for a lot of people and is meant to be bustling, but is quiet because everyone is gone. What's really striking about the way this movie portrays possession is that it is all about the fear of abandonment. That is what lets the evil in to the character it possesses. And it's fear of abandonment that drives the movie even when the demon isn't there. The demon is this strange comfort for the character it is company in some ways even though it drives the character to do really horrifying things and I hadn't seen that before in a movie I hadn't seen evil portrayed as company for better or worse that possession that sharing your body with something even like not is not being taken over by it so much as having someone there or something there uh, I really like this movie. I think it is, Os Perkins has a great way with shooting spaces to always give you this dread of, of whatever's lurking just outside the frame. Uh, he moves the camera in these very precise ways that just evoke dread, even, even in scenes that seem benign. Uh, so it's one I really liked, and it's one that you should check out on rental, The Black Coat's Daughter. All right, that's one I have to check out myself. For my next pick... And this was sort of what I was alluding to earlier. I went with a documentary. I Actually, I went with a trio of documentaries because when we decided on this topic, religious horror movies, this was really what I thought of first were documentaries about sort of real examples of uh, religious horror. They, they are the movies that in this world tend to upset me or disturb me the most. The first movie I thought of, the one that immediately came to mind, is not available online, though. That was Jonestown, The Life and Death of People's Temple. Have you ever watched that? I have not. It is a very, very disturbing movie about, you know, what happened at Jonestown. There's audio recordings of, like, the actual events, which are amongst the most chilling things I've ever seen in a movie. So... Um, that's a really good example of religious horror in a documentary. That one is not available, at least legally, uh, that I could find online. If you are, if you're willing to look other places, unauthorized uh, copies, you might be able to find it. But when I couldn't find that, instead I went with the next thing I thought of that I think also serves us very nicely here. It is a tri- trilogy of documentaries all on the same subject. They are the Paradise Lost Trilogy. Each movie is Paradise Lost within a a subtitle. They were made in 1996, 2000, and 2011 by Joe Berlinger and Bruce Sanofsky. 
Um, films one and three are available on Amazon Prime. I don't know why number two is not, but it is available on HBO Go or HBO Now. But all three are on HBO. Right, Go because they now. are HBO yeah. films originally. But uh, if you don't have HBO, you can watch parts one and part three on Amazon Prime. Uh, the films chronicle the ups and downs in this very famous case involving as they became to be known, the West Memphis Three, these three young men who were charged with the murder of three teenage boys, or I guess younger boys, in Arkansas in 1993. And basically the evidence boiled down to these teenagers were a little weird and they listened to heavy metal music, which of course, because this was the early 1990s, meant they were devil worshippers and they must have been doing satanic rituals and the forces of evil were compelling them to commit these murders. And without spoiling too much about the first movie, well, uh, they were convicted on the strength of these uh, of this evidence. And then the two movies that followed chronicled what happened after the first trial as these three men continued to fight for their innocence from behind bars. And I would say, you know, it's funny that the second movie is not available on Amazon. I'd probably say if you don't feel like watching all of these movies, the second is probably the least essential A lot of it is dedicated to sort of trying to prove the guilt of a guy who ultimately wasn't involved in the crime either, which is sort of strange given that the whole point of this uh, exercise in documentary is proving that, you know, circumstantial evidence doesn't necessarily make someone guilty. But nonetheless, the first documentary and the third are both very, I think, important documents of this case and of the American legal system. And I was thinking, you know, if you were a fan of Making the Murderer on Netflix— uh, the true crime series. If you're a fan of serial, I think you would definitely be fascinated by these movies. And I think they are scary as well. You know, like The Devils, these movies, especially the first one, are about paranoia and how it can take hold of this small community when it believes that it is under attack by these forces that it doesn't understand. And it's also about how convenient it is to scapegoat someone and how destructive. That can be not just to the person that you've or people that you've wrongfully accused, but to an entire community. And given the fact that Berlinger and Sanofsky basically spent 20 years of their lives off and on chronicling this case, that is a fairly unprecedented scope when it comes to documentary filmmaking. And if you wanted to binge watch the whole thing in a very long day, I think you could. And I think that would be. I think that would be a pretty incredible experience, actually. It's not one I've done myself, but I've I've actually watched these movies, all of them, more than once. I, I find them very compelling and very um, alarming in a lot of ways. Although I guess the third one, I don't, don't want to say it's a happy ending, but maybe not quite as horrible an ending as the first two films have. So that is the Paradise Lost trilogy. You can watch the entire thing on HBO's streaming platforms. Or you can watch films one and three on Amazon Prime. All right. For my second pick, I went with something that is, I think like yours, maybe not traditional religious horror, but I I think definitely falls into that category. It is Requiem, which is streaming on Shudder, which has come up a lot in this episode. This is a 2006 German film uh, directed by Hans Christian Schmid and starring the excellent Sandra Huller, who is the star of Tony Erdman. Uh, This was kind of the first role that I saw her getting a lot of attention for, at least in the U.S. And it is based on a real tragedy. It's based on the story of Anneliese Mikkel, who was a a German woman who had epilepsy and possible mental illness and who was treated in part at her own request with 
exorcisms. He was a devout Catholic, as was her family, for a year, uh, during which she began to refuse to eat and eventually died at the age of 23 in 1976. This was not, uh, you know, that was not long the ago. Yeah. yeah. Of starvation and dehydration. Uh, this event has actually inspired a more traditional horror movie, mm-hmm. Scott Derrickson's 2005 The Exorcism of Emily Rose. Requiem isn't that. It's an attempt to portray how this woman, who's called Michaela in the film, came to believe she was possessed, in part because uh, she's felt so frustrated by these series of exhausting and inconclusive medical treatments she's gotten over the years, uh, and how she starts to believe that her suffering is holy, uh, that she is suffering like a saint would suffer. And the movie is not intended to be a broadside against religion, uh, certainly not in the devil's sense, uh, though the tragedy of what happened to this character is always there and is, is a source of horror. Uh, the real Annalise Mikkel's parents and priests were charged with negligent homicide and were convicted, I believe, of manslaughter. It's a shockingly believable depiction of religious hysteria in not this grandiose sense, but in a small and mundane sense, in, uh, in a way that is really hard to shake. In particular, it is a depiction of how the framework of religious belief gets used by this main character, almost leveraged by her to provide an explanation for what she's going through when science is just not giving her the definitive answer she needs. And she's not isolated. She's not surrounded entirely by, by people who believe that exorcism is the right way to go. She has friends who try and intercede. She's a father who's very uncertain and kind of keeps trying to shift her back towards medical treatments. Even the two priests that she deals with are, are can't agree on this. Uh, uh, Hula is incredible in this role. She really makes you care deeply about this character, even as she is spiraling into behavior it is difficult to relate to. It starts with her going off to college for the first time and enjoying all these freedoms she couldn't while she was home with her protective, judgmental mother, and then starts to feel terrible about having taken advantage of them. There is in particular a scene of Michaela dancing and letting loose at a nightclub that is really wonderful. And as the film goes on, increasingly sad when you think about it. But it is, this whole film is a very grounded and kind of psychologically realistic exploration of why someone would basically turn themselves over to a a scenario in which they die. And, and why people would be complicit in this. It's really well done, uh, just as a portrait of a person and as a portrait of a person kind of surrendering to a very realistic sort uh, scenario of religious horror. Uh, so that is Requiem, and it is streaming on Shudder. Okay, before we get to the five other things we do on this show, uh, we did want to announce the winner of our contest from our last episode. We had one copy of La La Land to give away on Blu-ray. La La Land, it is available now by the time you are listening to this on Digital HD, and it is available on Blu-ray and DVD on April 25th. Uh, We had a uh, contest where you had to submit entries, and the random winner was Griffin B. in Washington, D.C., which rhymes. So, Griffin, uh, I'm going to contact you, and we'll get your information, and we'll make sure you get your your Blu-ray of La La Land. Congratulations. Congratulations. All right. So let's talk about some new movies in theaters. In the segment, we used to like to call something, but was it's hard to pronounce, so we don't say it anymore. <laughs> Unfortunate. You know, for people who are doing a podcast, we're surprisingly bad at talking, which is a small problem. Blah, blah, blah. Small problem. Uh, before we get to some of the bigger movies that are coming out next week... 
Allison really wanted to give a shout out to a film that is new in theaters right now, available as we are discussing this, and that is Colossal. Colossal. Allison, why don't you talk about Colossal? Sure. This is a new film by Nacho Vigalondo, a longtime Fantastic Fest uh, stalwart who, this is by far his biggest film, starring Anne Hathaway and Jason Sudeikis, and it is... It is one of those movies that kind of confounds itself because you don't want to give away its premise, which is, I think, so fun to discover. But let's just say it is both a movie about an alcoholic, unemployed content creator in New York who basically flops out of the city after her boyfriend kicks her out and goes home to upstate New York, uh, where she runs into an old classmate who never left. And it is also a movie about giant monsters attacking soul. And I I don't know how you feel about this movie, but I really, really enjoyed it. I thought it was very smart, both as an homage to the kaiju genre and also as a portrayal of basically male rage, (laughs) but also female rage. Uh, I, I think Sudeikis really digs into the type of character he's tended to play on screen and turns it inside out. And I thought Hathaway was very good as well. I thought she was really good. I didn't like this movie as much as you did. I thought the 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 male rage part, as you put it, I just I didn't think it was that great. And I think the I, I loved sort of the premise of this movie, and I liked Anne Hathaway a lot. And I thought I just thought the the ideas it was going for they it just kind of all fell apart to me by the end. Like I found the setup vastly more satisfying than the payoff. I just felt a let let down a little bit by the by the oh, second see, half of the I movie. I feel like that like the male rage portrayal is like painfully on point really yes. see I, I you know I, I jason sudeikis is a guy i like and think is very funny i i didn't really feel like he brought the right i don't know the right touch to those those scenes uh, yeah i felt like the fact that he was someone who has tended to play slightly smarmy nice guys right was perfect because that is a character who has frequently thought of himself as a nice guy mm-hmm. without necessarily being all that nice right well as a rageful male myself maybe i was maybe it was just too close you do tend to stomp on cities all the time i do i do all the time all right well a slightly split uh vote on that one let's move on to next week's offerings which includes one of the biggest movies of the year in my opinion it is the fate of the furious which to my Great consternation. I have not seen yet, but Allison has. I have. I got invited to the New York world premiere of this movie. Just I don't know why. Like, why? You know, sometimes these... Like, <laughs> I would every, like to know the answer because every, I did not get yes, invited. Every once in a while. And I have the entire script of the last movie tattooed on my back. So uh, I don't understand what I got to do to get an invite here. You know, I don't know why I got invited. Maybe it is the the amount of of representing I've done for Tokyo Drift is finally the worst one you're wrong I'm not wrong it's the worst one no no, you're wrong and I feel like you fundamentally misunderstand this franchise if you don't appreciate that this is more offensive than colossal right here now I am filled with male Uh, rage I will say that this movie the eighth in the franchise at this point uh, is you definitely feel, and I love this franchise, you definitely feel its exhaustion, in ter- both in terms of the number of characters this universe has included, mm-hmm. and and ones that show up, at, at, like, that do basically the thing that happens in movies now, too, where people just show up, and it's basically an applause point, you know? Like, you mean I like remember the previous this. characters? Yes, yeah. I remember this person. Right. Uh, yeah. Here's um, Jason Statham, here's yes, so-and-so. Yes, uh, yeah. you know, I really enjoy Vin Diesel's 
ability to deliver lines, incredibly corny lines about family with deep, soulful gravitas and no irony at all. None whatsoever. And I really enjoy The Rock's ability to deliver them with a hint of irony. A just twinkle, a smidge. Just a twinkle. And a lot of sweat. Yes, and a lot of sweat and a lot of Under Armour shirts. Yes. Uh, you know, I, I still, it's really enjoyable. It <laughs> manages to get to, as you've seen in the trailer, if you've seen it, it manages to get to a whole big showdown on ice, yeah. which they're driving across ice. And Cars versus submarine. Yes, there is a submarine. It does. It goes. It's very elaborate how it manages to get there. It feels like the whole movie was reverse engineered for that moment. I guarantee it was. Worth it. I, I, I do think that this is not as good as the previous, let's say, five through seven, which have really defined Ooh. the modern over-the-top nature yes. of the Fast and the Furious series. I am excited, though, to see when it, arrives in space in the next episode, which seems inevitable to me because they have really run out of otherwise ways to make things bigger. Yeah. 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 So it was still a good time, but I will say. Still a good time, but not not as good as the most recent ones. Not as good as the most recent ones. Yes. Well, as long as it's better than Tokyo Drift. You're wrong. I'm I'm right. No. And everyone knows it. No. Everyone knows it. What's the the other movie we're going to talk about? The other one we're going to talk about is a movie that's... I think very similar in a lot of ways. Almost identical. Almost identical. If you squint, they look basically the same. It is The Lost City of Z. And this is the newest film from one of my favorite filmmakers, James Gray. Also making, um, I mean, this is definitely like the biggest movie he's ever made for sure. Uh, This is uh, based on a true story, a, a, a real person of history, Percy Fawcett, this British explorer who, um, was sent to South America and then became sort of obsessed, convinced that there was this lost city. He calls it the lost city of Zed. They're they're British. British. That's what they call it. Uh, So I should probably start calling it that too, I suppose. I don't know. Is this like a Margaret Margaret situation where I'm allowed to mispronounce it just because? Yes. Okay, good. So uh, the film chronicles uh, his repeated attempts to find this lost city. I just saw it last week. The film premiered at the New York Film Festival. I'm not sure if you saw it there, if you've seen it since then. Allison, but what did you think of The Lost City of Z slash Z? Oh, I loved it. Yeah. In a weird way, it re- it I felt like it was the film. This is going to be a very strange comparison. Okay. I felt like it did for me what Interstellar failed to do. Huh. Okay. Continue. Is, I don't see it off the bat, but let's is, hear it. It is a movie about someone who's like calling really whose obsession keeps like bringing oh, him away yes. from his family yes. okay. in ways that yes. are very painful for him. Yes. And he keeps like because this is set this is a period piece to go to the Amazon is like a multi-year journey right and he keeps getting he keeps going and he comes back and his children are like older and strangers to him mm. and and his wife you know is like played by eternal girlfriend slash wife Sienna Miller uh it, you know is both still like loves him and supports him but is also like you haven't gone you know like you are basically missing out on our lives as a family <laughs> Um, uh, I think that it managed a balance that I really appreciated in terms of being like how pursuing this calling that you feel comes at this cost, like a huge cost that you pay. Right. And I, I thought that that it was something that Interstellar never really, for all that it was supposed to be explicitly about that in some ways, I, it always really irritated me how it was framed. <laughs> and I felt like this movie does it much better. I didn't. When you first said it, I was like, I don't know what she's talking about, but you're absolutely right. And that is, I think, what 
you know, distinguishes it from other movies about sort of mad explorers. You know, certainly the description and even parts of it will remind you of Herzog and many of his movies. There's also a little bit of like an Apocalypse Now kind of vibe, a Hearts of Darkness vibe. But the the difference, as you said, is that it's not just like one mad expedition that's doomed. This guy keeps going back and back and back. And in between, he keeps returning home to this family that he barely knows and that's sort of like increasingly resentful of him and the fact that he's more obsessed with the lost city of Z slash Z than he is with their their sort of their lives. And yeah, I think that's what makes it so interesting is that it has this sort of it's about obsession, but it's this very sort of like the tone is not like super florid and feverish and over the top. It's this very it's like a rational consideration of the cost of that. And, you know, the kind of push and pull between wanting to achieve something, make an important contribution to the world, and also wanting to love your wife, love your children. and Have a life. Have a life, yeah. Have it, you know, do what makes you personally happy. And I agree. I thought that that was a very interesting way to approach this thing that we have seen on screen before in a way that I felt like we hadn't seen and the other one thing I would briefly say that I thought was incredible was the cinematography. Darius Kanji, the movie is just absolutely gorgeous, and it is just delightful to watch. And it feels in the way that it it kind of leisurely or just deliberately goes through this long stretch of time in this guy's life, it has a kind of throwback feel that I really enjoyed. It, it feels like – I mean, a lot of James Gray's movies are like this. They feel classical. They feel like they're from a different era in Hollywood filmmaking. When we were talking about how I couldn't imagine a studio making The Devils, it's hard to believe that anyone financed this movie now in a I, way because – I don't understand how he gets financing for any of his movies, frankly, because they're all financially unsuccessful. And I cannot imagine that this one will be financially well, successful. And certainly as this much one as I like must it. have cost more than all the he other shot ones. in the Amazon. Right. And, and it is hard to believe that someone gave him the money to make it make it but god bless the people who did because i'm really glad they did it is a it's definitely one of the better movies of the year or whatever year you want to count it as so far and i definitely think it's worth seeing so that's the lost city of z slash said i think that's how i'm going to refer to it from now on it's good all right let's move on to behind the eight ball where we wrap things up on every episode of svu by talking about some new releases on streaming some listener recommendations that you guys have sent to us at our email address, svu at filmspottingsvu.com. And we also give you one film chosen blindly by number from our my lists. Allison, you want to go first? Yeah. All right. Well, let's start with three new releases on streaming. Okay. First up, new to Netflix, Kubo and the Two Strings, Oscar-nominated was, I think, my favorite animated film of last year, like a gorgeous Japan-set fantasy about mourning and storytelling and magic. If you missed it in theaters, and you probably did, because this was not a box office success Mm. and may have bankrupted Laika, it is really wonderful and worth seeing on Netflix. New to Fandor is Metalhead. This is a 2013 Icelandic film directed by Ragnar Bragason about a teenage girl growing up in a rural community who channels her grief and rage over the death of her brother into heavy metal fandom. It sounds cutesier than it is. It is actually a fairly poignant uh, depiction of mourning as well. And that is on Fandor. 
And finally, new to Amazon Prime, though it's a little tricky to find. I've noticed that there are some quirks with searching for it. The Love Witch, Anna Biller's Technicolor thriller, starring Samantha Robinson as a witch who uses her powers to cause men to fall in love with her, only to be dissatisfied every time and discard them uh, in, in her further search for happiness. That is on Amazon Prime. All right. How about two listener recommendations? First up, we have one from Matt in Madison, who sent a few recs. This is one of them. Matt writes, I noticed that Amazon Prime has all of these Stray Cat Rock and Female Prisoner Scorpion movies available to stream. Nice. Yes. These are two of the better known series that one might consider part of the pinky violence genre of Japanese exploitation films. All of these films take regular turns from colorful and absurd to tawdry and salacious with occasional dashes of socio-political commentary. In my opinion, the best of what's on offer on Amazon Prime is Female Prisoner Scorpion Jailhouse 41 from 1972. Despite being the second film in that series, previous familiarity is definitely not essential. You'll thrill as Scorpion leads her fellow convicts on a daring prison escape. You'll marvel as they travel a surreal blighted landscape to a destination unknown. You'll wince as prison guards and leering tourists receive their comeuppance. Strangely beautiful and stylish despite its brutality, Jailhouse 41 is a great place to test the waters of this corner of the Grindhouse universe. Thank you, Matt and Madison. That was a great, (laughs) well-written recommendation. And I have a recommendation from Greg, who writes, I recently started and finished Crashing, the British Channel 4 sitcom from Fleabag star and creator Phoebe Waller-Bridge. It's a bit more conventional than Fleabag, but no less funny and weirdly moving when it wants to be. Six short episodes, and they are streaming on Netflix. I don't think this is the first time someone's recommended Crashing, but I feel like the fact or that many people have brought it up is all the more reason to watch it. Thank you for that, Greg. Okay, and how about one film, or I guess TV show, chosen blindly by number from your... My list. You gave me number seven. That is The Carmichael Show. Oh. Uh, This is the NBC series that is created by and starring Jared Carmichael. I've heard a lot of good things about it. It is apparently like... very traditionally multi-camera sitcom that takes on very non-traditional subject matter like Black Lives Matter, Plan B pills, and the ethics of eating Chick-fil-A. So that's one I added recently and I'm excited to kind of catch up on. Yeah, I added that one recently too, actually. Well, I'm glad. I hope you didn't end up. It would be pretty funny if it was my 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 list pick this time too, but it's it's not. It's not. All right. Well, why don't you give me three listener recommendations? Okay. All right. Fine. First up, new on Netflix is Tower, a very good, very unusual documentary from last year about the infamous mass shooting at the clock tower of the University of Texas in 1966. The film features interviews with witnesses, survivors, people who were there, and there is archival footage as well. But all of the interviews and a lot of the film is done with rotoscoped animated footage. Uh, Recreations and documentaries can be a very sensitive subject, but I think this movie uses them very creatively and very effectively. It's a very, very good movie. It's Tower. It is available on Netflix. Next up, a film I really liked as a kid and have not seen in decades. It's Searching for Bobby Fischer. This is available on Hulu. It's a film about a chess prodigy and his education by two different teachers, played by Allison. Have you ever seen Searching for Bobby Fischer? I have not. Oh, man. Well, the teachers are played by Ben Kingsley and Lawrence Fishburne. Not bad. No, not bad at all. And they both have very different approaches to teaching chess. I am not a chess player by any means, but when this movie came out when I was like 12, 13 years old, it was on HBO a lot. 
And I always got sucked into it. I probably saw it a dozen times. And I, I don't know. I guess I just liked the performances, which are very good, and the story, which is about you know potential and how you nurture it, how you get someone to become the best version of themselves that they can be. And, uh, you know, when I saw that it popped up, I was like, God, I, I need to rewatch Searching for Bobby Fischer. That is available now on Hulu. Finally, also on Hulu, one of my favorite movies. I've seen this one a lot more than I have seen Searching for Bobby Fischer over the years. It is Saturday Night Fever. It is another movie, though, about potential and ambition. Uh, except in this case, the talented young man who is an aspiring dancer from Bay Ridge, played by John Travolta, he doesn't have a teacher. He doesn't have a mentor. And so perhaps as a result, he doesn't always make the right choices. And he kind of wanders his way through the world, looking for a way to turn his love of disco and dancing into an escape from his crappy life in the outer boroughs of 1970s New York. If you've only seen this movie on like basic cable, you have missed some of the darkest and most important scenes in the movie. And while the fashion and the music have long since become kind of jokes, uh, kind of campy, the basic arc here remains hugely influential even to this day. I think there are I don't know if there's many movies that have inspired more rip-offs without sort of being directly obvious than Saturday Night Fever. The new Spider-Man movie that is coming out this summer, Allison, is about a teen Spider-Man from Queens who dreams of going to Manhattan and becoming one of the Avengers. It is essentially Spider-Man I mean, Night Fever. This is also our current president's origin story. <laughs> Uh oh, I killed you. <laughs> you killed me with a very trenchant observation. So, yes, go see Saturday Night Fever on Hulu. All right. How about two listener recommendations? All right. Our first comes from Mike in Los Angeles. He says, I had a recommendation all ready to go because I was sure I had already given you an iTunes review. So, I'll briefly give some love to Chris Rock's Top Five, which I noticed is streaming on Amazon Prime. I remember the film getting great reviews when it appeared in late 2014, but it seems to have faded away. I think it's a terrific comedy that holds up on revisiting. And lastly, thanks for reading my Before Sunrise recommendation recently. I snickered to myself when Matt complimented my description of Amazon's streaming library as stealthily extensive. Take care. That's from Mike in Los Angeles, California. That is stealthily extensive. It is, especially when there's so much attention paid to Netflix's shrinking movie uh, movie array. Which is also true. Although I've noticed recently Netflix, when you load it up now, they're like, we've added 25 movies in the last four days. And then you look at them and you're like, like what are these movies? Yeah, I've yep. never heard of any of them. All right. Uh, next up, we have a recommendation from David in Belfont, Pennsylvania. David writes... For my streaming recommendation, I'm going with In the Loop, which is currently available on Netflix, featuring one of the funniest and most biting scripts of the last 10 years. In the Loop has become an even more important film in light of recent political events. All the political figures in the film are desperately trying not to be held accountable for the things they say, and watching and rewatching it lately has given me a way of channeling my frustration into laughter. Bitter laughter, but laughter nonetheless. Uh, that's a recommendation from David in Belfont, Pennsylvania, In the Loop. A great movie. I haven't watched it too recently. I mean, it was brilliant the day it came out, but I can only imagine what yeah, I would think watching it now. It might be a little too painful now, I wonder. <laughs> yes, the bitter laughter may turn to, like, bitter crying, perhaps. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not, I don't know if I'm ready to revisit it, but that is a, a great, great pick. Thank you, David. All right. How about one from your My List? You gave me number 18, which this time is... Santa Clarita Diet is one of one of the, I guess, 6,000 Netflix series of this year. 
The description is they're ordinary. They're an ordinary husband and wife realtors until she undergoes a dramatic change that sends them down a road of death and destruction in a good way. Uh, she would be Drew Barrymore. The husband is Timothy Oliphant, creator Victor Fresco. I have not watched any of this show as I have not watched most of Netflix's show because it's impossible to keep up with all their content. Have you seen any of this one? Allison? I have seen all of it. Oh, is should I keep it on my my list? Should I bump it up? Should I delete it? It's okay. It, it is a net, down, so it's a Netflix series. It goes is what you're down saying. very easy. It's a lot shorter than a lot of other Netflix series. That's it good. That's a good thing. And I believe they're all in the half hour range. All right, that encourages me. Yeah, and it has a great Timothy Oliphant performance. I like him a lot. He is very funny, and I think kind of cast a bit against type. Given he plays often funny characters in dramas. Yes, but he is, I think, legitimately funny in this. Oh, okay. So all right. So I'm going to keep it right there. Maybe I'll move it up soon, but uh, all right. It's not it's definitely not getting deleted. That's the Santa Clarita diet. All right. Let's get to our listener's choice options for our next episode. An intriguing batch of three films. We've mentioned two of them already. Allison, you have the first. What is it? It is The Love Witch, uh, Anna Biller's film. This is a, for a movie that I think got a very small release. This has been a very talked about feature and uh, in particular its relationship to this older style of film, the kind of like Hitchcock uh, style. There's a lot, there's like rear projection. The colors are so bright and beautiful. The performances kind of uh, harken back to a very, very non-modern style of performance. And yet its subject matter is very current, at least in terms of its kind of uh, complicated feminist uh, point of view. So I think there's a lot to talk about there, and we can certainly do that if it wins. The Love Witch is on Amazon. I have not seen that one. I was really disappointed I didn't get a chance to catch up with it. So I would be happy to do that one. Uh, I think sounds like there would be a lot to talk about for that one. Our second option, uh, I already mentioned it. It is Tower, which is available now on Netflix, directed by Keith Maitland. Again, this is a very unusual documentary uh, that combines animation, testimony, and archival footage to relate the events of August 1st, 1966, when a gunman opened fire from the University of Texas clock tower, killing 16 people. And I have to say, watching it, when I watched it the first time, you know, the sort of recreation animation aspect, at first I wasn't entirely on board. But I think as it goes along, you really see why this was the right way to do it, at least to me. And I thought it was used very effectively and cleverly. And uh, I really, I really thought it was one of the better documentaries of last year i guess you haven't seen this one i Allison. haven't and I, this is one i would like to see win because uh i am a bad critic and did this is one i missed oh, stop and i you're really a like bad critic it. because you were you you're such a tokyo drift fan this has nothing to do with oh, it history will prove me right mm, i'm not so sure but anyway so tower and again there's lots to talk about there with the documentary form and and what it does with it yeah maybe we can talk about Pushing the documentary form a bit. Mm -hmm. you know? Or animation and documentaries. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a lot we could do there. So that's option two, Tower, which is available on Netflix. And finally, option three is Barbershop, The Last Cut. This is available on Amazon and Hulu. It was released last year, uh, directed by Malcolm D. Lee. A sequel, one of the many recent long-delayed sequels. Um, a sequel to 2004's Barbershop 2, Back in Business. The third film in the Barbershop cinematic universe. Uh, or, or at least this series. Uh, got Ice Cube, Cedric the Entertainer, Anthony Anderson, Eve. 
the new edition of Nicki Minaj and Regina Hall in common. But I, I think the thing that really makes me interested in this movie is that it finds the barbershop series taking on Chicago gang violence. Uh, and actually, some people made the case when this came out. I have not seen this movie. Matt, have you? I have not. Yeah. I, I I don't think I ever saw the second barbershop either. Yeah. I really liked the first one. Yeah, I saw I the first too. one in theaters and thought it was great. Yeah. But well, I, I've, I've fallen behind the barbershop, barbershop cinematic series. Well, universe. There, maybe this is time to catch up. But either way, the third film has gotten compared to Chirac, Spike Lee's film, sometimes very favorably compared to it for, from some people who felt that it actually did a better job of tackling uh, Chicago and and Chicago's violence uh, than than Spike Lee's film did. So that is your third choice, Barbershop: The Last Cut, a movie I am really interested in seeing and uh, in checking out. It is available on Amazon and Hulu. Yeah, I don't think we can go wrong with any of these options this time. But it's up to you. Which movie should we review on the next episode of Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit? Send your pick to SVU at filmspottingsvu.com. Or enter in the poll on the right-hand side of the page at filmspottingsvu.com. Your vote must be received by Monday, April 17th at noon. After that, we'll announce the winner on Twitter at our Twitter account, twitter.com slash filmspottingsvu. And you'll have all that week to watch the film. And then join us for our conversation on our next episode, which should be out on Tuesday, April 25th. And of course, filmspottingsvu.com is where you can find our show archive, as well as a list of direct links to everything we discuss on the show. If you're interested in streaming something and can't remember where it's streaming, we'll just have a direct link there. So check it out. The Film Spotting SVU remix theme song is by Vince Vandal. You can find more of his work at vincevandal.bandcamp.com. And we will be back in two weeks with more recommendations and the review you pick. In the meantime, you can always find us on Twitter at Allison Wilmore and at Matt Singer. And you can find the show at Filmspotting SVU. And you should give it a follow. That is where we announce the winner of the Listener's Choice poll and also where we share streaming suggestions on various platforms as things show up. So it's a good place to find things that we may not get around to mentioning in the episode. For our Film Spotting SVU, I'm Allison Wilmore. And I'm Matt Singer. Thanks for listening. <laughs>